0: Do you like data centers? Because I love data centers!
1: I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Rio. I do love data centers.
0: I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to, and despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag I love data centers in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of I Love Data Centers. With me is a longtime friend, Christian Koch, uh, who is with Packet uh, Fabric, and he has his hands involved in a lot of different projects in and around the industry. But Christian, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. Super excited to be here. So, Christian, you're a world traveler, but where where do you reside these days? Where do you call home?
1: Yeah, so I'm based in New York City and, um, you know, I actually grew up here. Um, spent a lot of time when I was young in New Jersey. Uh, moved out to the Bay Area. Spent about five years there before moving back here. Um, and I live, you know, in Manhattan and I live really close to some of the biggest data centers in the world, actually.
0: So... Growing up, and I just want to dive right in so we can get to the meat of the content here, which is going to be all around interconnection and and cloud connection and peering exchanges and the the nuance and the complexity and the miscommunication and confusion in and around that space, um, which I can't wait to dive into. So I want to get some of the core basics out of the way so people understand where, where you're from and how you got to where you're at. But where did you truly grow up?
1: Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting question, actually, because i've I've kind of dabbled all over the place um, when it comes to the industry, and you know, I, even though I began working on network infrastructure in the late '90s, uh, early 2000s, it wasn't really until about 2005 that I actually stepped foot into data centers, right? So, it, you know, my first but hold job, on, buddy.
0: Buddy, yeah. I'd, I I want to get into where you started working, but where did you grow up? Like, where was little baby Christian born? And oh, where oh, did he, oh, yeah. <laughs> where um, did he yeah. get started in the world?
1: Yeah. Um. So I grew up in Brooklyn. Um. And I was still fairly young when we moved to New Jersey and lived in North New Jersey, and I absolutely did not like it. It was just not busy. Uh, or there was just not enough action for me, even as a little kid after growing up, growing up in Brooklyn, like hearing those sounds of the overhead trains and, you know, the noise on the street and the sirens and all that. I was, you know, quickly sucked into to really like loving that urban atmosphere.
0: It was embedded, embedded in your early childhood psyche that you need to have that that uh, commotion going on outside. So yeah. where, where did you start um, getting involved with tech? Like what, what were the earliest memories you have of computers and technology? And I, just to throw this out there, assuming from the prior conversations we've had that you're around my age and you're in your mid to late thirties, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm somewhere around there. Um, I guess, you know, it was, you know, probably, you know, the late, well, it was probably the early to mid-90s when I actually first used a computer, right? And back then, it was Prodigy, CompuServe, America Online, uh, Bulletin Board Systems, and uh, you know, I had your 2400-baud modem, um, super slow, life was slow back then, though. We were in New Jersey, um, you know, we didn't need fast internet, Not that, not that it was available, but... Um, you know, you just didn't need it. You didn't even know things could be faster. Um, so basically I think I was in eighth or ninth grade and I wanted a computer and I didn't want the easy route. I didn't want to just go buy one. I didn't want my folks to just go buy me one, um, So I built one. So, you know, I, I went out and we bought the case and, you know, my, my family paid for it and all that, but we bought the case, we bought the processor, the motherboard, the memory, um, the modem, you know, the hard drive, everything needed. And we, and I built that first computer and that's kind of when it all went downhill or, or, you know, uphill in a (laughs) a positive direction. Um, that kind of got me hooked on, you know, computing and all, and all that and spending countless hours and nights, um, cruising bulletin boards and, you know, exploring, you know, the so-called internet as it was back then.
0: So the um, two things from your your profile here on LinkedIn that uh, I want to just touch on, one is I see that you also went to the school of hard knocks, which uh, I can appreciate, uh, which I think uh, is worth worth noting, but the the other wearer of many hats at various companies from 1999 to 2005. What what were some of the the oddest of jobs that you that you carried in that in that period? Um.
1: Yeah. So I guess you know probably one of the most interesting ones, and probably the most significant one actually is that uh, one of my first jobs was wiring up um, hotels in Seacaucus, New Jersey. Uh, for high-speed internet and learning how to punch down D-Slam bo- blocks. Um, and that's kind of what got my whole start into connectivity and, you know, what What the hell are networks, right? I had no idea. Um, they're just like, yeah, just run these cables, do this, punch this down, you know, and, and kind of learn from there. And that was kind of where, you know, um, you know, I, I, things just took off. And I was just like, wow, this is really cool. Like, you know, Connectivity.
0: Yeah, that's uh, a similar story to Garrick Sturgill and him getting into the industry was wiring fiber all over the place. And when he was putting fiber into Paul Allen's house, he was like, well, where where is this going back to? <laughs> like, where does this, what's the other end of this line? And it was a data center. And uh, one of the contractors on the job invited him to come back to the data center, which just happened to be um, the uh, exchange in Seattle. And that's where he, he got started in the industry. So. Um, we all come from many, many different places into uh, into the space we're in. So, so you get in and you start playing around. How did you get involved with Globix, which and QTS, which is where I know we originally crossed paths when we were both there around the same time? Yeah. So
1: you know, I, I had a few different
0: jobs um, up until um, I I kind
1: of went over to Globix, and um, you know one of those jobs, at least before I, you know, worked at Fordham university, worked at a, you know, small kind of systems integrator, um, consulting company. And so I got exposed to a whole bunch of different environments, right? Like heavy Linux environments, heavy networking environments, really large scale and in, you know, at a university, um, small business, so SMB and SME and, um, you know, I had started exploring a lot and, you know, just reading more on the internet about about the internet, right? And uh, I was like, wow, like, look, like Knox, these are these things are really cool, like network operations centers. And it's dark, um, there's big screens, you got all these blinking lights. And um, the whole premise of that was just really cool, right? Like you're just keeping an eye on what's happening for, you know, Hundreds of thousands or millions of businesses around the world, um, and you know, I randomly actually got called by a recruiter, um, which was working for an agency for Globics, um, and I looked him up, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is like super interesting, right?" I uh, I was just looking at this kind of stuff, and here is this this company which operated data centers, and, you know, at one point during, like, the dot-com boom, uh, operated a massive network around the world. Um, so it, the timing was really interesting, but that's kind of how I got in there. You know, I went through interviews, and, you know, I went and I got a job, and I worked in the knock, and I kind of grew through the knock fairly quickly and wanted to learn. Um, this was also, if you think about it, this was two thousand. I want to say this was like 2005, 2004, maybe somewhere around there. And Globix was kind of, you know, at the tail end, right? It was, you know, it it went through the dot-com boom. It had a bunch of success. It, you know, had a bunch of failure. Um, And, you know, I basically got there, which was maybe like a little more than a year before, you know, QTS uh, acquired them.
0: And And you moved or they moved you... Or did you already, had you already moved from uh, the NYC area out to Cali?
1: Oh, yeah. So there was a a massive
0: outage. um,
1: And I believe it was a power outage uh, at the Santa Clara Data Center. And, you know, everybody is scrambling. And, you know, Globix had these systems that were just ancient, right? They had these sun... Uh, Spark stations that were running critical network services like NTP, network time, right? Uh, Syslog, TFTP, uh, authentication, Um, and these things went down during the power outage and just wouldn't come back up. And, you know, to make a long story short, there was a big scramble. Um, We finally, you know, got new systems in place, got access to some of these old systems, and, you know, then we had another power outage. And at that time, you know, the folks were like, hey, we don't have any network engineers in California. Does anybody want to go there? And specifically, you know, they came to me and asked me and I'm like, yeah, I'll go. I'm like, why not? California uh, seems cool. You know, I I remember the first time I, I went there and, you know, I got off the plane and I saw the mountains around me
0: uh, at San Francisco airport. And I was like, I love this place. So, Around 2000, I don't know where. At some point in those late 2000s, we connected. I think you were on your way out of QTS while I was on my way into QTS. I definitely came in after all those power outages had occurred. <laughs> there was like some very small, light staff inside that Santa Clara office, um, but we got connected through our mutual friends, Bobby Lash and Drew Taylor, uh, who were you know the fellow Northeasterners, uh, and y'all kind of spoke with. With the slang that, that I wasn't very familiar with coming from Chicago and living in Cali uh, and I must say uh, Christian you've definitely lightened your your Brooklyn accent over the years since I originally <laughs> met you um, and Lucy Ye, I remember the four of us kind of trolling around to different events and whatnot uh, in and around San Francisco but what I've always appreciated too which I think we'll get into in a bit is you have never backed away from uh, telling it like it is um, and the one thing that, you know, I, I kind of live my life by a motto of essay quam videre, which means to be rather than to seem, which just happens to be the North Carolina state motto, which I'm <laughs> very proud to, <laughs> to to say, which is where I live now. Um, but you just kind of, you know, throw it on the table, and you're not uh, afraid to stir up some shit if you need to, uh, to drive conversations forward and to hold people accountable, uh, and to create meaningful conversations that uh, people need to have. So. Um, what, what sparked that with you, right? Is, is that something just, uh, that you got out of your family, uh, being around your family? Is that how they operate or was that a lesson that you learned? You know, I can say that I can point that directly back to, uh, my dad who worked on the New York or the, yeah, the New York Stock Exchange and the Chicago Board Trade and the CBOE, And just being around him in his office and on the floor of the stock exchange, like that's just how everyone operated. There was no other, (laughs) there was no other way of operating. Um, You just told it how it was at all times. Uh, But how about for you? Yeah, good question. You know, I I actually can
1: pinpoint it. I I I know I just have a low tolerance for bullshit that's that goes back really far and i i don't know exactly where it started but um you know it's a blessing and a curse right because there are tons of people who appreciate it and can respect it and there are and there are also a lot of people that are just like dude that's um that's pretty harsh and you know at the end of the day like that's just the reality of the world we live in though. Um, yeah. and there's a lot things harsher than, you know, me having a strong opinion and telling you that, you know, a, maybe your product sucks or, you know, b your marketing sucks or, you know, whatever the case may be, or, Hey, this is not going to work and you need to do things like this. And you know, whatever, whatever that, whatever that may be. Um, and I've just kind of stuck to it. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't gotten enough complaints where, you know, I really had to change my tune. And uh, I'm kind of glad because I think it is um, a unique thing to to have and... um you know, it is kind of, that is kind of me. Right. And, um, I have a strong opinion. I always have a strong opinion on things and, you know, I like sharing my opinion. I like being controversial. Right. Uh, I like being contrarian. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't believe that everything I hear is going to work and we can get into some of that I'm sure later.
0: Yeah. And the, uh, the key though, I think for both of us, at least that we've, <laughs> we both learned over time is uh, having a strong opinion is one thing, not being able to have discourse, right? And acknowledge someone else's opinion and talk through it and walk through it and have a conversation to kind of hash things out is another thing. Um, so, you know, you're, you're not a, uh, a dogmatic uh, individual in your viewpoints. You, you're definitely able and wanting to sit down with people who may disagree with you but can intel- intelligently uh, have a conversation uh, around why they think you may be, may be wrong.
1: Absolutely. And, and I love being wrong, right? There's, n- there's no other better feeling actually. Well, besides being right, um, but there's, <laughs> there's, you know, be, there's no better feeling than being wrong. And, but being able to humble yourself and, you know, accept that and, and, and actually like open your eyes to, to these new ideas or, um, a new theory, or whatever it may be, right? Um, so it's it's pretty amazing to be, to be wrong as well at times, as long as you know how to handle it.
0: So you're in the Bay Area, and when you left QTS, you embarked on a, a handful of different um, career projects with with companies that got you to where you are, uh, and kind of centralized you in the heart of the the network uh, world through. Your work with Nanog and your work at PTC and and um, Apricot and a lot of the different events in the industry. But can you can you walk through that evolution and maybe, you know, one or two of the, the lessons that you learned along the way as you were kind of solidifying, solidifying yourself as, you know, one of the, really the handful of people in the industry that um, have had the experiences that you have in some hyperscale companies, some massive growth companies, um, some companies with very, very large global network infrastructure.
1: Yeah. um, So, you know, it was interesting because uh, I was at QTS and I got to QTS and I was, you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley. And it was, uh, what was it? Like, you know, we are right at the end of the first decade of the 2000s, right? I think it was 2009, somewhere around there. And hopefully I'm not wrong, but I think that's where it was. and you know i started going out and and you know meeting people and 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 learning my way around the valley and you know i kind of had this it wasn't an epiphany but i was just like wow this is like amazing out here if you are if you are a geek and you like technology and you like computers there was no better place to be right so i can't even imagine or i can't even begin to imagine how amazing silicon valley was you know, during the dot-com boom and even years before, right? Because 2010 was, it was kind of late. It it wasn't, you know, late as in it was 2016, 2017, when we started seeing these massive changes happening in San Francisco and, you know, the Bay Area in general. Um, But anyway, um, you know, I I started learning about all this. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to work for this company um, that's just kind of, you know, they've got great data centers are doing great things. These are, these are, this is really important and much needed infrastructure, but there are way cooler companies out here. Um, So I kind of embarked and, you know, I looked around and saw what was out there and I ended up at this, um, you know, startup that was aggregating instant messaging, right? So it was called Mebo, M-E-E-B-O. So, What they did was aggregate all those instant messaging clients into one web platform. And this was when like Ajax and kind of web 2.0 was really big, right? So you had your your AIM, you had your Yahoo Messenger, your MSN Messenger, your ICQ, all on this one web page. And it was really cool, right? So uh, I spent a couple years there and, you know, uh, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall as, you know, Uh, company wasn't growing in you know in the trajectory that it should have been growing or that it wanted to be growing and i kind of started looking around and um uh, i ended up going to twitter at the time um you know maybe a year into twitter mebo got acquired by google um wasn't one of these big celebratory acquisitions though. Um, So I, you know, I wasn't too mad, Um, but you know, I joined Twitter. It was, it was fairly early. It was before the IPO and uh, you know, we were building out a big global network. Um, We built out our own CDN in partnership with, you know, a large CDN provider. Um, But, you know, we kind of installed and deployed those caches within our own network pops um and you know i moved to san francisco by that point and you know that's when i really was like wow this is even better than silicon valley right because i worked for globix and i qts sorry i worked for qts and i was living in santa clara and it was great right i mean the weather was great you had the mountains around you but you know it was kind of slow and you know, it it reminded me a bit of New Jersey in that essence. And, you know, that caused me to question what I was doing because I didn't like slow, you know, it's nice to slow down every once in a while, like vacation and all that, but I'm just not a, I'm not a fan of living slow. Um, so I moved to San Francisco and, you know, I was working for Twitter and, um, you know it was exciting san francisco was just an, it's just an amazing city um and there were startups all around you know everywhere you went you met someone that worked at a startup or a venture capital firm or they were a lawyer that worked in tech um uh, or they worked in finance but you know for tech whatever it was you always met someone that worked in tech um and that city is so small um but that got fairly tiring um really quickly uh, you know because as diverse as the city actually is, um, it's really not that diverse when it comes to uh, you know working in tech and, and so forth. Um, so you know I, I kind of I, I worked at Twitter and uh, I was there through the IPO a little bit after the IPO. Uh, I threw in the towel and I decided to move back to New York. Um At the same time, I joined Microsoft um and this was my kind of exit from engineering in in a sense where I started focusing full time or a, a lot more on you know planning and strategy around interconnection and peering and
0: um things like that so that's that's where we're kind of th- pick up the conversation. And um, interconnection, as far as most people who are in around the data center are concerned, really just think of a meet-me room or a, a cross-connect area inside a facility where the customer can connect to a carrier. Um, unless you're playing in that uh, large carrier space on the network side and you're familiar with the carrier hotels and you're familiar with how much traffic is being peered between those f- providers. Um, and you're familiar with just peering in general, which the more and more I, I talk around and ask around the industry, there's very, very few people who even understand what the heck that stuff is. Um, I'd love for us to kind of start dropping some knowledge for, for our listeners um, and start defining some terms because we're going to need to do that for the, the later conversation we're going to have. So, uh, you know, Christian, in your eyes, how would you define a Carrier Hotel and what makes a Carrier Hotel different than just a, a standard data center?
1: Uh, yeah, so a Carrier Hotel is basically a large building that occupies. Well, so let me start over. Uh, a Carrier Hotel is a large building with numerous data center operators inside you know, operating typically as uh, inside a suite, they will call it, or a co room. And, you know, that's their data center, just like it would be their data center out in, you know, Northern Virginia or Ohio or the New Jersey suburbs, wherever it may be. It's, you know, multiple mini data centers inside this really big building. And this really big building is basically this connectivity hub. Right. So it's got tons of fiber coming in, whether that's long haul fiber, metro fiber, uh, subsea cable systems, all coming into this building. Typically, there will be a meet me room. Right. And this meet me room is where all the cross connects are done. And um, there's not that many of there's not that many carrier hotels are actually specifically like this today. Um because of how the internet has evolved and because of how businesses have evolved and because of how interconnection has evolved. But basically you go into this building, you, you go into the meet me room, you get a cross connect, you connect to whoever else you want in the building. doesn't matter if they're in an Equinix data center in the building, or if they're in a digital realty data center in the building and we'll call those suites, right? So, uh, If you're in digital realty, you connect to the meet-me room. Through the meet-me room, you go to Equinix. Whatever it it may be, whoever the the data center operator is, that's kind of the point. is a central building where really dense connectivity happens.
0: And I I would just add to that that the other key component here is this is also where the carriers share traffic with one another, right? Right, right. And and that's... Yeah, so that's that's the fundamental key differentiator, whereas in most data centers sitting out in the suburbs or even in, in major metros, you have customers connecting to the carriers and then the carriers will backhaul that traffic in from that data center to one of these carrier hotels where they have their core network nodes that feed out to the internet at large. And the concept of peering... Uh, you know, let's let's just very briefly describe the concept of peering because that's critical to understanding why it is that these carriers uh, want to connect with one another. Um, yeah. So,
1: if I even take a step back and just say, well, making sure everybody understands what interconnection is, right? And interconnection at its basic premise is a mutual connection between two or more things. Right. And if you take that a step further and say, well, what is interconnection in telecommunications? Right. Well, that's a mutual connection between two or more networks. Right. So those things become networks. If we go and talk about peering, peering is the voluntary interconnection of separate internet networks. Right. And the purpose of that interconnection is to exchange traffic between networks. So network A is a broadband provider in the U S you know, maybe it's Comcast and it's got, you know, 25 million users. Network B is, um, you know, let's say network B is (coughs) QTS and it's a data center and they've got all these managed services and all these businesses hosting their, you know, information systems, computing systems in that data center. And, you know, these two groups of folks need to talk to each other. Um, So their peering is what would bring them together, right? Comcast Network A would send their data on the routes that they have to get to their customers. They would send that to Network B, which is QTS, and vice versa. And that would enable these two networks to talk to each other and one network's users to get the content from the other network.
0: So there's there's two different types of peering, right? There's paid peering and then there's unpaid peering. What what determines the paid or unpaid component of those uh, networks connecting with one another? Sure. So you've got, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so you've got settlement free
1: interconnection (SFI), which is that is kind of the free peering kind of thing. Um, and we'll talk about the free part in peering um, in a little bit. And then you've got settlement based interconnection, which I refer to as two different things, right? There's that can be paid peering or that can be IP transit, right? They're both settlement based. You're paying for something. Basically the difference is with settlement free interconnection, you agree with another network to exchange traffic at specific locations that is mutually beneficial to each of your organizations, right? To each of your networks, there is a mutual benefit. With settlement-based interconnection, it's a customer and a um, seller relationship, and you are buying something from them. Um, Really large networks are not going to engage in settlement-free interconnection with everybody. That's just not the way it works. They have a business to run um you know their pr- one of their primary products is selling ip transit and they're going to sell it to most people and they're going to interconnect in engage in settlement free interconnection with just the really large ones right as they used to call tier 1 and i'm really not a fan of that term but nothing has really came along to to force us to stop using it but those tier 1 internet providers or those, those <coughs> excuse me, those tier one internet service providers. Um, and what classifies them as tier one is that they are transit free; they do not pay anyone for transit. All of their relationships with the other networks that in which they
0: interconnect are settlement free. So, who who are some of those major tier ones that are peering with one another? Yeah,
1: so I mean, your CenturyLink, right? Which is now uh, a
0: big uh, roll-up
1: of Level 3 and Global Crossing and tons of other companies, right, and Verizon and AT&T, um, GTT. These are all examples of Tier 1 networks who are just peering with a, a specific number of networks in order to reach
0: the complete Internet. So if I'm AT&T and you're Verizon and we have a peering relationship, I now have effectively the access to your entire network. Uh, once I connect to you inside one of one or many of these locations, such that the traffic that I'm trying to route from point A to point B has visibility into all the infrastructure you've deployed. So my network is now almost you know double the size of of uh, what I would have just standalone. <coughs> right? So it's looking for the fastest route possible for packet A to get from uh, you know the home location to where it's intending to go, um, looking at the entirety of all the people that I've been peering with to that extent. That's right. Um, is there anything else you think we should discuss about either paid or unpaid peering to, <coughs> to help our, our listeners understand that core concept?
1: Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's good to know that peering can occur, you know, via multiple mediums, right? So your cross connect, which is what you would establish between networks if you wanted, you know, if you were going to engage in uh, private peering, or you can connect to an internet exchange. Um, now an internet exchange is a basically a layer two platform, right you all these different networks connect to this internet exchange, and then they can negotiate and agree to exchange traffic with any of the other networks on that platform um, so those are kind of the two different methods of public peering that you know we've kind of seen up until today
0: all right, so the players such as. Uh, the different the different peering exchanges, right? And when I got started in the industry and started learning about these different topics, there were very specific uh, peering providers. You know, Equinix had a peering exchange. Uh, Telex had a peering exchange. Corsight had a peering exchange. Uh, and then we had the European players who had different exchanges as well with links and DKix and whatnot. Um, what makes those exchanges unique and or different um, amongst one another? And I know that's a very large, large question. So let me, let me break it down even further. Uh, There's a distinct difference, let's just say, between how the U.S. uh, Interconnection operators play the game and how the European uh, Interconnection uh, Peering Exchange providers play the game. What is that and why is that? Um, so I, I think this, this actually comes down to a few different things,
1: right? And, you know, first and foremost, it is, and I believe it's in part due to a different approach, uh, with interconnection and cross connects. Um, but really the, the main reason here is that, you know, the majority of the internet exchanges and you no, know, let me th- <clears throat> let me take a step back. A lot of internet exchange points in Europe um, have this nonprofit member-based model. Right, they're not for-profit organizations. They they do not have any kind of really commercial structure. Their members their members pay a membership fee. In some cases, and vote on uh, the strategy and direction of the Internet Exchange. Right, so whether that means lowering costs, or entering a new market, or you know the creation, or uh, you know the uh, the you know the creation of policies. Um, whatever it may be, right? The membership has a say, um, and you know we're seeing a lot more of these now. But you know the dominant um, model in the U.S. is commercial, and it's also operated uh, mostly by a data center. Um, so they're they're very different. They're very different models. Um, That model does exist in in Europe now as well, but that has been kind of the driving force, right? The three largest internet exchanges um, in Europe are all basically some sort of nonprofit member-based, member-governed
0: organization. You're like a co-op, basically.
1: Yeah, very very similar. And there's actually someone who's you know in San Francisco who's done the or you know, has implemented the actual co-op model, and that's SF Mix. Um, you know, a lot of these other guys are 501c3 or 501c6, whatever fits, but SF Mix has af- actually adopted that actual co-op model, which is really cool.
0: Um and actually to to dig into that topic. Uh, that's Tim Pozar who I interviewed in one of the uh the early podcast interviews that I have posted on I Love data centers and I'll I'll pull that up while we're talking but um so that's that is one of the key differentiators. So while Equinix and TeleX and CoreSite and a handful of others in the US including I think it was uh New, uh what was the New York one that Testarossa started? Uh, uh, well he started NYC Connect Data Center. Yep. Um, which was like the eighth, was the eighth floor or the sixth floor in um, 111 8th Avenue? I don't remember which floor it was. Um, but he, he had, they're all pay to play and it was a single company that would charge and there was no co op model what, uh, whatsoever. Um, and, you know, every month rates would, or not every month, but every year or term, end of term rates would increase. Uh, almost consistently year over year or term over term, whereas in the co-op model, uh, rates would only increase for members if you had the same amount of members and for whatever reason, the total cost for running that infrastructure increased over time, uh, but rates actually would decrease the more members were part of the exchange. So, I think that's a that's a key, key point here because it led to something called OpenIX, which I know you've been a part of in the past. Uh, And may still be currently, but um, how did that specific dynamic of peering, uh, how peering was managed and how interconnection was managed in the U.S. versus Europe and elsewhere lead to the advent of something like OpenIX? Um, Yeah, so, you know, I I think what people
1: really we're looking for was kind of a more even playing ground, right? And, you know, they wanted some of these benefits that you saw if, when you were deploying infrastructure or operating infrastructure in Europe, and they wanted those benefits in the U.S. Um, and, you know, in the very beginning of OpenIX, you know, there was – you know, it, it, the intentions and what actually ended up occurring where I think were very different and I wasn't there from day one. Um, but, you know, I, what came out of it was let's create this unified standards body on, you know, how interconnection operates. You know, let's make data centers more transparent. Let's make meet-me rooms better. Let's make internet exchanges better. Um, and kind of like, you know, how the MEF, uh, does for Metro Ethernet, we just kind of embarked on creating standards around that. And, you know, these standards were, Hey, you know, you should have, you know, this type of controls within your meet me room. You should have this type of security. Um, you should post your interconnection prices online. We should aim for transparency, right? And this created these standards and, um, I, I don't follow it too much these days. I haven't been involved for a couple of years, but um, it looks like it's still going on. And there's, you know, still certified internet exchanges. There's still certified data centers. So I mean, I hope they are, um, you know, really working towards and accomplishing the goals they set out um, to fulfill that mission.
0: Yeah, for for what it's worth, the story that I've heard um, in the hallways is that the the major. Content providers and some of the major carriers got together and said, hey, we'd like to establish a similar type of model that is in Europe here in the States because the price for interconnection and peering here in the States is just dramatically higher than it is elsewhere. Uh, And so OpenIX was a uh, a mechanism by which they were going to do that. uh, Subsequently, um, and I had this conversation, actually funny enough, not too long ago on a podcast with... Uh, Robert DeVita, who's over at, uh, was over at OpenIX as the, uh, you know, the chairman or whatever it was for a period of time. Um, it, effectively, the Equinixes and Telexes and, and whatnot came to those content providers and the major carriers and said, look, 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 if, if you guys will just shut up and and stop pushing this mantra uh, through OpenIX, you know, we'll give you guys substantial rate discounts um, so that this is no longer uh, a main issue for you to be driving. And um, subsequently, if you just follow the timeline, uh, the key members of OpenIX dropped out of organizing and really pushing the story forward, uh, not long after those conversations. And it's been kind of left to the industry, other industry tier two players to drive the conversation and try to figure out what to do with OpenIX. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that entity. Uh, though I'm all about having the standards in place, which is fundamentally lacking in our industry at large. Um, but getting back to the topic at hand of interconnection. Um, with all this talk of of interconnection and the growth of public cloud, right? The whole concept around public uh or cloud uh cloud access and, and um cloud internet exchange has come up. Uh and cloud obviously means so many different things to so many different people. Uh but in the primary uh, I guess use case that most people in the data center world uh, think of when they think of cloud exchange or cloud internet connection uh, is the ability to access the likes of your major public cloud providers like AWS and Azure and, and Google uh, and whatnot. Um, but it's it's so much more than that, right? Um, so I guess let's let's dive into how and why it is that this cloud exchange platform and whatnot has. Confuscated the the topic of what inter, inter inter interconnection is and what all these different players and providers offer in the in the space.
1: Yeah, um, let's let's get into it, Sean. Um, this is, I mean, I- I- interconnection and and not just interconnection, but what's happening now. Uh, I, I just think is super exciting. We're we're just at you know a major major transformational moment, um, within internet infrastructure that, you know, anybody that works at a data center company or a network service provider, um, whatever you may do, if you work in this industry, uh, you should be really excited because of, of what's going on. And, um, it's not about 5g or edge computing. Um, so simmer down a little bit. Um, but there's plenty of other reason to be excited. Yeah, so what?
0: there's Megaport, there's Packet Fabric. I'm just going to talk off my head here of the players that I know that we're we're talking to about putting together some type of, uh, not some type of, we're going to be putting together a white paper that will hopefully add some color and some clarity and context to everything that we're talking about right here, right now. But with Megaport and Packet Fabric and Equinix and Digital and uh, even now the major carriers like CenturyLink and AT&T and uh, Zayo, um, and then a handful of other of the traditional peering exchange providers like DKix um, and Lynx, they are all now claiming to have a, a cloud internet exchange, uh, you know, platform. Um, how do we dissect this and, and translate it so that people understand, like, what truly is the difference between a connection into the likes of Packet Fabric and a connection into the likes of a Megaport or a CenturyLink or uh, you know the Equinix Exchange? Uh yeah, so let let me just
1: let me just take a moment, moment and see where I'm going to start here because there is just so much to talk about around this topic. Um, you know, okay, first and foremost, I think people need to understand how substantial the opportunity is, and I don't think the numbers I'm about to tell you actually even depict that yet right? So Gartner says that worldwide spending on public cloud and infrastructure is going to reach over 350 billion by 2022. Um, Staggering, staggering number, right? Um, And in the right scale state of the cloud report from 2018, they surveyed enterprises about hybrid cloud strategy and public cloud strategy. And they found that 58% 58% of the enterprises they surveyed will adopt a hybrid cloud strategy. So pretty pretty, pretty big, right? Um, you know, nearing almost 60% of, uh, you know, and I think they survey a couple hundred companies. But if you take those numbers and you actually kind of sit back for a second and think about it, and you think really hard about this, you will realize that, that transformational shift that I was talking about um, is going to be bigger than you probably expected, because all of this traffic and people have been saying this for years, right? Megaport and we had console and and you know the disclaimer. I work at Pack and Fabric. Uh, we all have these platforms that you know enable cloud connectivity and interconnection with third parties. Um. But if you sit back and kind of think about this, if all of this traffic starts shifting to private connections, you know, between an enterprise and a cloud provider, you know, via a platform, you know, whether in, and whether that's, you know, a Megaport uh, packet fabric or Equinix uh, cloud exchange, whatever that is, um that's going to be a very dramatic shift uh, you know in enough time because we're not even we've just cracked the surface of of cloud adoption right like it's been aws announced uh, amazon launched aws 2000 in 2006 13 years ago and we're just cracking the surface of cloud adoption and in 2022 spending is going to be around 350 billion so put that into perspective um, it's it's just massive right I mean there's no other way to describe it so you're going to see all this traffic shift off of the public internet um, and 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 you know quite frankly in Cisco's forecast they do a they do a cloud forecast every year. And they're forecasting that 95% of data center traffic is going to be cloud data center traffic. Um, So, you know, staggering and really eye-opening numbers to think about how interconnection is really changing. You know, cross-connect is basically your gateway to a whole new world of new connectivity models and shifting strategies, um, you know, within... You know the digital business as you know, it's kind of a buzzy marketing term, but it's it's fairly correct, right? I mean, if there are businesses that do not need to be digital, right? Uh, my local gas station, you know, they do not need a presence online, and then you've got digital business, right? The mom and pop shop down the block that sells candy, maybe they are going to move online and, and you know widen the distribution and and you know get more brand exposure and you know in turn generate more revenue. Um so anyway, you know, the shift is is pretty fantastic it,
0: to watch and um to kind of see occurring. Yeah, and I uh, think anyone in our space will acknowledge that that shift is occurring. There there the debate may be around how fast that adoption is going to be occurring because I I know that if you look at the, the number of interconnections that were expected to be happening uh, by some of the capital players who are backing some of these companies uh, and yet, and then you look at the actual number of connections, they don't, they don't map, you know, one-to-one, right? There's they're coming a little bit short of hitting the expectations of the volume of interconnections uh, taking place. Uh, But the flip side and that flip side, but one of the key things that I think we should back up just for a second and talk about is how all this is physically occurring, right? So a these exchanges that we're talking about, right? These peering exchanges or cloud exchange platforms, it's in essence a physical switch, right? And everyone's connecting into this physical switch. So there's a physical either fiber or, uh, or copper, you know, Ethernet cable that goes from that client's Uh, infrastructure into this box that everyone has a connection into, which then everyone has is has the ability to connect through and to one another from this box. And the advent of uh, the software defined network, right, is really the key, key component here. So the technology and the software that's inside this box that gives people visibility into all the other players inside the box. Uh, and who they can connect with, and how they can connect with them, and where they can connect with them, I think is really the game changer. And that's where a lot of advances are being made uh, in the technology and the software uh, within these exchanges. So there's a physical connection being made inside these boxes that sit inside these uh, facilities. And then from there, uh, people can log into, or clients can log into, and the carriers can log into, Uh, the platform and see all the other people that they have the ability to interconnect with and through and to, which is unique. It's different. It didn't used to be um, as simple and as easy uh, to make those interconnections. And as someone, Christian, who's literally been a part of that process and and physically watching the growth and doing those interconnections, um, you know, can you, can you speak to how that software component and the advancement there has, has changed the game?
1: Um, yeah. So, uh, for one, I, I really, I really don't like the term SDN because most everybody misuses it, and
0: that goes to. It's so different than the word cloud, though, right? Like, no, I, I wish we could stop using the word cloud, and yet we have to.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely comparable. Um, but here, here's the problem: it's it's just so misused, um, and it's even misused by people who. Uh, leverage it. And it, it, I think things come to a point where you're like, oh, wow, the market knows it by this. So we just have to embrace it and use it. And to me, that's a cop out, right? And and that's the kind of marketing um, that I really can't stand, right? Like I want to see like, you know, be open, be truthful, you know, tell me, you know, craft your message to tell me what the value is that you provide. And you don't have to use all these buzzy words and you can be honest. And if something has taken shape you can uh you can stop using it and you can educate the market I mean that is your job as a marketer is to educate the market um, but anyway let's go back to this whole software defined um platform right so if you look at internet exchanges going back to you know the the late nineties mid nineties even um, when the first ones were Uh, established and you know i'm gonna even go prior to ip when it was atm with may east and may west that was actually software driven you would actually use you know you leverage software to make those connections um but going forward um these are you know internet exchanges were layer two platforms right they're just a switch um and that was you know over 20 years ago um, fast forward to today and and look we as an as a whole it, the network industry moves really really slow compared to what folks are doing with compute right so like i said before aws cloud computing 2006 right we are just now you know really starting to embrace and see automation and software-based networks, software-controlled networks really take shape. So this platform that Internet exchange points have, you know operated on, and the architecture that has been used has been there for decades. It has been the foundation for what we have today in cloud exchanges. Um, uh, interconnection platforms, network as a service platforms, whatever you want to coin it. I like network as a service platform. Um, it has been that foundation from the very beginning. And all we're doing is placing software on top and making intelligent decisions and automated decisions on how we operate it, how we manage it, and then the most important part is the service delivery part, is that you? There we are, you know, Packet Fabric, Megaport, all of us, we are reinventing how services are delivered. Um, there is no more signing a piece of paper, waiting for that piece of paper to be processed, uh, having someone from provisioning reach out to you, Another you know, and time just going by, we don't have that kind of time um, we need to move faster, we need to be we need to be more agile, we need to move more efficiently you know we need to work smarter at the end of the day that's what it is, and this is what all of this actually contributes to is working smarter at the end of the day
0: that that smarter working is the only thing that's going to allow for the adoption of cloud at the rate that these different firms are predicting, right? Because yeah. if it's it days or even hours to form these connections, um, there's no way we're going to have that many millions of businesses around the world uh, making those connections. It's going to be too complex because um, this stuff is, you know, the, the only, the, there were only what a, a few dozen people as of 10, 15 years ago who understood how all this stuff worked uh, at such a scale. Uh, And now we have maybe a few thousand people, Um, but how many companies are there that are in need of these services? Uh, So that means that we're either going to have to train, you know, hundreds of thousands of more people to understand how this stuff works, or we're going to have to create a platform that makes it simpler uh, for companies to, to make these connections between and amongst one another.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interconnection peering, you know, whatever has always been kind of a black box up until, you know, maybe five, five plus six, seven years ago, um, you know, where we started to see, um, I, I don't know if I would say that it's, you know, becoming more mainstream, but, you know, the awareness has, has definitely improved and there's lots of people and lots of conferences and lots of events and lots of materials out there that we can, Um, you know, uh, appreciate that has kind of, you know, helped this along and helped educate people. Um, You know, even, even these platforms, you know, like, like us at Packet Fabric and like Megaport, like Equinix, um, you know, these have been this other gateway, you know, in the reverse actually. Right. So, um, we see that enterprises start connecting to these platforms for cloud connectivity. And then they're like, Oh, wow, I can join an internet exchange on the same port. And, you know, then I can, you know, uh, shift my inner or my start over. So I can connect to an internet exchange over the same port that I get my cloud connectivity. And then I can peer with other networks that are non-cloud networks. Um, and we're starting to see that. I mean, if you take a look, there's people like Chevron and um, their Invesco and like finance. These are financial and oil, right? I mean, financial and oil and gas. Think about that. Like these are people that are now getting involved in peering. Um, so, to, you know, to me, that's also super interesting. So we're we're seeing it both go both ways, right?
0: Yeah, and the the number of different actors that are participating in these exchanges is also, I think, of note, right? So something as simple as a CRM, so Salesforce, for example, uh, having a presence on this exchange and being able to directly connect to Salesforce uh, makes it such that if there's issues uh, in in connecting to Salesforce via the internet at large, uh, you will have the ability to directly connect to Salesforce such that your sales team you know, their productivity doesn't have to be squashed because uh, of issues with the, with your IP transit, um, connectivity. So, and we're seeing it now also through, through the work I'm doing with MicroCorp and their partners, the UCAS providers. So the unified communications service providers such as Mitel and Nitel and Nextiva and whatnot, they're all connecting into these exchanges, allowing customers to also connect directly to them. Uh, inside these facilities, which is making the, reducing the latency for voice data uh, and, and just regular um, traffic between those two firms uh, that much um, faster. So there's lots of different applications that can be leveraged uh, and can be taken advantage of as more and more people get closer and closer to one another um, via these direct connections. So... With that being said, one of the key things I really want to get out of this this podcast with you is what makes Packet Fabric uh, different than Megaport, and then we can dig into you know what the Equinix Cloud Exchange is doing that makes that different than Megaport and Packet Fabric. But let's just start with that basic question about Megaport and Packet Fabric and what the two companies are doing. And I know you you spent some time at Megaport, so you're you know one, very uniquely positioned to speak directly to what those key differences are between the companies. Yeah. Um, and I, I
1: obviously get this question a lot, um, but uh, I honestly also think I'm in the, one of the best positions to answer it. And that's not because I, I spent some time at Megaport as well, but it's also because uh, I was a packet fabric customer prior to uh, taking a role over here. And the key difference is that, Packet Fabric, um, when, you know, when, you know, the founders had this vision to build this, um, they, the one thing, the one key thing that they did differently was they built a carrier grade network, high speed, redundancy everywhere, um, carrier grade network, right? We are Verizon, but doing it right. Um. And, you know, that's, that's really the key differentiator, right? We are both platforms. We both leverage software for the operations and management. And as I said before, the important piece, which is the service delivery, um, we both provide access to cloud providers. Um, we both provide access, you know, between your own environment in data centers. And, you know, this is the important piece is that uh, we are high speed, 100G everywhere. Um, and, you know, have a network that is multi, multi terabits um, and very comparable to carrier networks, the traditional carrier networks and legacy telecom uh, that you see, but, you know, actually built for the future. You know, it's 2019 and we feel that a network should operate like it's 2019. And that is uh, enabling our customers to be agile, to leverage an API, to align economics, network economics to their cloud economics. If they want to pay for usage based on a three month period uh, of maybe a particular project, uh, you know, in the cloud, and then we want them to be able to do the same thing with us. They want to buy that network and align it with those cloud resources. Um, so those are the kind of things we're doing. And look, Megaport, ECX, we're they're doing the same kind of stuff, and everybody's, you know, I think is doing a pretty good job at it. But those, that is a key difference. It is that we are a carrier grade network.
0: So carrier grade network that's also um, doesn't require long term commitments, right?
1: Right so, so if,
0: you if know, i want to pick up 10g for 2 months for a project and then turn it off you know i can do that versus having to sign a 12 a month contract or 24 month contract exactly and that's
1: and and that's the alignment with cloud computing that i'm talking about right so if you need to spin up some really Really beefy machines, right? Like a lot of RAM, a lot of CPU. That typically would be pretty expensive if you're going to go buy those machines and, and install them in your own data center. We do the same thing, right? So you want to go, you know, underneath the pond and and, and go from the U.S. to London. Um, you can do that, and you can do that with cloud economics. And if you <laughs> want to do the other side and go to uh, Australia, um, you know, and you want to do that using cloud economics and you pay for what you you use, you can do that with us, right? So that's you know, that parity is important. When we continue to move and I shouldn't say move, we are in the cloud era, right? We are in a cloud-first world right now um, and the alignment is really important. Um, but if you want to do that, you can go do that and you can do it without ever talking to anybody. You can leverage an API to uh, you know, place an order, get a quote um you know provision a new service um and you know the l o a and and all those you know minor operational details are just you know automatically generated and handled by the system
0: how about s l a s though so for those customers that are saying this sounds great, but is there an s l a wrapped around the delivery of the service
1: uh yeah a- absolutely you know and our and our s l a is kind of pretty in line with what the industry sees and um you know it's available online fairly transparent um you know uh, i think we do five nines on the core network and you know it's like i said it's a carrier it's a carrier grade network and uh um you know we treat it we treat it as so
0: the the thing that uh has blown a lot of people away that I've been talking to and introducing into these different, uh, the megaport and the packet fabric solutions is the fact that pricing is so transparent. It's all online. <laughs> you literally can go to the website, click on pricing and see what it would cost for different speeds uh, from different facilities, which is just mind blowing uh, because so much of the, the carrier world has all been negotiable uh, and seeing pricing constantly fluctuating and changing year over year even month over month at times. So that's, that alone has been insane for people to realize and just how cheap it is as well. Um, You know, relatively speaking the cost for, you know, a 10 G or a one G connection into and and, in on the, on these exchanges is just drastically cheaper than it is uh, going direct from, from the carriers. So with, with that being said, and that established, what are what is Packet Fabric doing though that is different than Megaport? Like, what are the use cases where um, you think there's there's true differentiation between the two organizations?
1: Uh, yeah, so you know, I, I think this builds upon a lot of you know, I shouldn't say a lot of them. This builds upon uh, what I've mentioned before, which is we are a a true carrier grade network. So, uh, what we see, we see, you know. Customers that want to build their own private backbone um, but don't want to or can't or don't have the resources or budget to, to spend on fiber and wavelengths and... Um, you know, anything that you traditionally need to build that, uh, you know, a, a carrier type backbone or, you know, a private network backbone, um, they come to us, they can, you know, get a port in multiple locations, whatever data centers they, they reside in, and then they can connect them up and they can add multiple connections on a single port. So they can have that private backbone um, and they can have it really quick. Um, so that's, that's one of the huge use cases um, for us, right? Um, and I think that's a little bit different than, than how Megaport has approached things. So Megaport has approached things from m- much of the cloud first mentality. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? It's everybody operates their business and, you know, defines a strategy and executes differently. Um, and I, I think this market is going to be big enough that we're all going to uh, see great success. Um, but, that would be the kind of the, the key use case that we see, you know, and that's just, that's different, right? I mean, we see the cloud, we see the private connectivity between networks. Uh, we see people leveraging us to connect to internet exchanges, whatever it may be, right? It is a platform, right?
0: So when you say carrier grade network, what does that mean? Like what would, what would distinguish a carrier grade network versus a non carrier grade network? Yeah. Uh, so are there are any specifics to that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, things like, you know, we are lighting fiber. We are, uh, buying a lot of high capacity bandwidth. Uh, we are using higher end, uh, routers and switches. Um, And, you know, a lot of the architecture is similar to how uh, network service providers are carrier grade. uh, Shouldn't even, actually shouldn't even start, should stop, just stop saying carrier these days. Um, You know, but, you know, architecture that's very similar and, you know, ready for um, high scale, high bandwidth. um, uh, Those are probably some of the things that I I
0: would use to define it. Okay, um, now let's talk about the the ECX, the Equinix Cloud Exchange. So, ECX, um, and how ECX would be different than Megaport or Packet Fabric, because this this is a question that I've had to answer for both customers and partners dozens of times, um, and the pros and cons, and advantages uh, and disadvantages of leveraging some someone like Equinix and the ECX platform versus leveraging um, I would say a more potentially more agnostic platform such as a pack of fabric or a Megaport port um, to make the similar type of interconnections uh, that a client wants to wants to procure um, how would you go about defining that to to a customer who says you know what's why can't I just use ECX to accomplish what you're telling me I should accomplish or I can't accomplish Yeah so
1: you know, there's there's one key difference right and that is that you know the ecx is limited to equinix data centers so if you have a lot of money and you don't care about it then you can buy connectivity <laughs> and services from ecx um and you can deploy in every equinix data center in the world And and i'm only half serious there right i mean i think i think You know, the key here is to be able to respect what Equinix has built because they're damn good at it um, and take a step back from complaining about pricing and why is it priced at a premium? Because if you actually look at like pricing theory and all that, um, this is, you know, they get to that high pricing, you know, using logic, right? Using sound logic, they arrive at charging a premium because they've built a premium product. They've got, the economies of scale, right? They've got the density. So, you know what? that kind of thing, you know, can, you can command a premium. But yep. let's go back to the point, right? Is that that's, that's the only real difference, right? You're limited to Equinix data center. So if you've got three deployments in Equinix data centers and you've got two deployments in QTS, guess what? ECX is not going to be the best option for you. Um, but the best option for you is to diversify just like you would with any other carrier, so maybe you get ECX and packet fabric maybe you get packet fabric and Megaport maybe you get ECX and Megaport Um, whatever you know decision you make and strategy that you put forward um, you should always be diversifying just sticking with one of us is the same as putting all your eggs in in the same basket and just having Verizon for your connectivity
0: which is a dumb move in 2019 right yep yeah, and one of the other key features and functions, I think, of these uh, offerings, these platforms that we're talking about, um, is the ability to spread that traffic across multiple, uh, uh, I guess, services, right? So let's say I buy a gig port or a 10 gig port or even a 100 gig port uh, with Packet Fabric. You know, Let's walk our listeners through what you can do with that and all the different things that you can leverage with that one port.
1: Um, Yeah. So look, I mean, you get that port and you have it your way basically, right? So you get a 10 gig port and you can take out uh, two gigs and you can create a virtual connection to an internet exchange, right? Uh, You can take two gigs and create a cloud connection to AWS. You could take another two gigs, create a cloud connection to Microsoft Azure, right? You can take a gig and create a virtual connection, which we will call private peering, and you can establish uh, you know that connection with one of your partners. You can take another gig and get internet access, right? So any network service that you can buy that you can consume, you can do it over a single port with virtual connections segmenting that traffic into a secure and private fashion.
0: And the very next day, you can rejigger and reconfigure the whole damn thing.
1: Yep, exactly that, and that is the value, right? It is allowing allowing organizations and network teams to be agile and to adapt to the demands of the business instantly, right? Uh, and on demand, and not have to wait weeks or months
0: uh, to be able to make those changes. So let's speak to some of the limitations, right? Uh, because this sounds all, you know, rainbows and, and sunshine and unicorns. But what are some of the limitations of leveraging these platforms? And I'll throw one out there just out the bat, because when I talk to a lot of customers about the solution, they're like, well, this is no brainer. I'm like, let's let's get this signed up. I want to do this right now. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, which, what data centers do you have a footprint in? And they're like, well, we're not in a data center yet. I was like... Okay, well, Packet Fabric isn't going to sell you that last mile access. So we have to get you from wherever your data lives now to one of the locations where Packet Fabric has a presence, right? So, you know, that's one, right? So Packet Fabric isn't going to own that, manage that, uh, that process for the customer. They still need to get from point A into a facility where Packet Fabric is located.
1: Right. And, and that's, and that's most of us. Right. But I think, you know, the next step in that evolution is, is enabling, um, you know, the on-prem stuff. And there's multiple ways to go about that, right. Through partnerships and through other network development. But that's probably one limitation is, you know, none of us are, you know, building fiber in the Metro and are going to extend to a commercial property.
0: Right. Um, what what are some of those the other limitations that you've you've seen or found in in the market?
1: Um, I, I, you know, honestly, I, I haven't seen that many, and you know, I'm I probably have to think about it a, a little bit because I'm sure there are some, um, but I've probably got a little packet fabric bias going on right now, and and you know, platform bias in general. Sure, um, you know. I think one of the things, you know, that comes up and, you know, it, it's came up in the past, even before I've, you know, before Megaport and Packet Fabric have ever been created, it's the challenge with legal and finance to, you know, shift the habits and the processes of buying services and procuring services um, where there's not a sheet of paper included, or, you know, there's maybe no room to negotiate terms because, you know, we've all worked to simplify legal documents as, as much as we can. And, and uh, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't negotiate things like that, right? I like mean, everything's negotiable. And, you know, if organization needs to make a change or has, you know, a proposal to make a change, you know, we absolutely uh, have those conversations, um, but you know the goal is to make it simple enough where you can
0: just click through, sign up, and order, and be on your way, right? Yeah, that's actually a key point that I didn't think of, um, but definitely is a hurdle is in the procurement process, and, and it could also be the flip side of it, right? So the intention is to make it easier and simpler to procure. Uh, however, some companies may prevent the uh, the let's say the director of network engineering from moving forward with this type of strategy without first going through T's and C's and red lines um, of an agreement, which is all freely available online. In fact, I'm almost positive uh, that's, that's all posted on your website, uh, which I can almost guarantee you it's not for most of the carriers. Um, But that, that is a a key point to bring up. Um, So let's, let's then get into like the different, Direct Connect options and cloud exchange options that the carriers themselves offer, right? So CenturyLink has has an exchange cloud exchange offering. Zayo has a cloud exchange offering. ATT has a cloud exchange offering. Um, what might be some of the differences? And, and I come across this because they're like, Sean, you're talking about all these different, uh, you know, the Megaport and Pack of Fabric offerings, but, you know, we have one. Like, well, why aren't you talking about what we're doing? I'm like, well, what what you're doing has... Limitations, you know, very similar to those same limitations of, of the Equinix cloud, offering, where you need to be an Equinix facility to take advantage of it. So, you know, similarly, you need to have uh, the ability to access that carrier to take advantage of that exchange. But um, what might be some of the other limitations or, or differences between what those providers are offering versus what uh, Packet Fabric and, and the others that we're talking about are offering.
1: Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, let me first start by saying that, you know, a, a lot of those guys and those, those, a lot of these carriers are great partners um, to, you know, not just back at fabric, but a number of uh, initiatives or projects that, that I have, or am currently working on. But um, have you ever seen what happens when a, a legacy telecom provider tries to write software? It's not pretty, right? So <clears throat> that's number one. Number two, um, they've got the last mile stuff, right? So that's that's kind of a differentiator. And that's um, an advantage that they have already is that they're, you know, depending on the market, they're in the last mile and they can sell to those enterprises. I don't really think they're selling that much inside the data center. Um, not, with, not with solutions like Packet Fabric, Megaport, or uh, Equinix Cloud Exchange around. Um, I just don't think it's significant... Uh, enough. Um, so that would be really the only one that I would really see is um, it's, you know, just much more of a vertical integration for them because they've got the fiber themselves, they've got the lit network themselves, and they just stack on the the, the cloud connectivity part and bolt that on and, you know, there you go, they can serve commercial properties in metros uh, or in markets that they're present in.
0: Yeah, the the other interesting paradigm, which is a little bit different from the physical and the network component that I see occurring is uh, the likes of Xeo. Of you know, I'll just take Xeo for example. They've had a uh, cloud exchange platform where if you connect into, if you're, if you're in a facility or in a region that has Xeo connectivity, uh, more often than not, you can connect into this platform and you can have visibility into the Azure, AWS, uh, Google platforms, and you know procure and and do a lot of not all, but a lot of the same things that you could do inside of a, a Megaport or a Pack of Fabric um, platform once you're connected to it. Um, but to my point, I have seen the Zayo sales team and the carrier sales teams at large having a very difficult time learning these new technologies because they're so outside of the core of their business. Um, so you know, selling data center and hosting services uh, has been a struggle for most of those who have sold carrier services their whole career. Learning how to sell a cloud exchange platform when they have very little understanding of what the true advantages are of cloud exchanges in the first place and or even public cloud in the first place is, is difficult. Um, And I was actually just having an interesting conversation with someone from Crown Castle in our office the other day about their data center offerings that they have. And I was doing some brief education with him, even though he's worked with the company for a number of years, of what the real differences are between the Crown Castle data centers and some of the production data centers that we have here in the Raleigh area, such as Cyrus One and Fluxential and Tierpoint. And really was very eye-opening for him just sitting down and having a very brief conversation on that topic. Um, so I think one of those other just interesting paradigms is that we have companies that have the ability to do some of the services that we've been talking about today, uh, carriers, um, and yet the sales reps may not even bring it up to their customer and offer it because they don't even know about it or are not comfortable selling it because they it's too confusing for them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think carriers in general just have a problem. Um right and this problem is basically hey we have a lot of users and all these different opportunities to create new revenue streams and so they they dive into all kinds of stuff right so the cloud connectivity is one piece and it's that's that's a little bit more reasonable um, but I just read that MTN which is a carrier in Africa is gonna in, is going to sell insurance services. Uh, I think T-Mobile announced recently they're going to, you know, create a bank account. Like, come on, guys, let's stick to what we're good at or what what they're good at, and that's connectivity. Um, and you know, why don't you work on improving the connectivity and improving the business model instead of creating these absolutely ridiculous new revenue streams? Um, and this plays into the cloud connectivity part, and you know, Zayo. Zayo sells block storage or object storage or or one of these. Like, who's buying object storage from Zayo? Who's amazing at 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 fiber, right? And they're great. I mean, they've got so many assets, and you know, they've had their issues over the last year or a few years. And uh, you know, with the Digital Colony um, acquisition, I, I think ZEO is going to be a, a real—not that they haven't been, but I think they're going to be a real force to be reckoned with. And you know, those guys are going to clean up they're going to unload some of the stuff zcolo will probably be gone some of this cloud stuff will probably be gone
0: and they'll get back to their core focus on you know selling really great network yeah to to that point um it's been very interesting and i think one of the takeaways that i'd like the the listeners to have is you know packet fabrics focus is very specific right you guys are dedicated to making um, wholesale connectivity and you know large port connectivity available uh, on a a easily consumable platform. Month over month contracts, uh, you know, spin it up, spin it down as you need. Um, you know, as you mentioned, a twenty nineteen network. Um, you don't have. I mean, how many? Empo- I mean, you have a fair number of employees at Pack Fabric, but you're not talking about the thousands of employees that the likes of the carriers have. Uh, And just, you know, to be blunt, uh, when you've gone through the acquisition upon acquisition upon acquisition of different companies, it creates not only a lot of bureaucracy, but a lot of organizations and systems and technologies that aren't talking to one another, which adds friction in the process of both procuring, uh, delivering, uh, and managing services, right? Whereas, you know, Packet Fabric has... I mean, how many employees does Back Fabric have? Uh, we're just about under thirty, actually. Yeah, and you know, Megaport has a few more than that, but they haven't gone through gajillions of acquisitions. Um, and you know, the whole point of these newer organizations that are coming out and delivering the services that you guys are delivering is very focused in uh, fixed uh, versus trying to be all things to all people uh, when they're having a hard time just delivering the service that they that they. Um, have built their whole company on in the first place. And yeah, I hate to bring this up because I, I love the team over at the the CenturyLink um, hosted solutions, uh, formerly Savvis basically, uh, team within CenturyLink who are some of the smartest people that I've I've worked with in, in the marketplace um, that is delivering some top-notch services to their customers. But at the end of the day, they're operating within CenturyLink. Um, And so there's a lot of limitations that they have as a result of that. And first and foremost, um, because of the level three and CenturyLink acquisition that went down, you know, not too long ago, there's been a lot of bad taste and a lot of customers uh, minds and mouths uh, due to how all that went through um, and changing up of the engineering staff and the sales reps and the support teams and, um, you know, service just. Isn't as top notch as it used to be, so there's a brand recognition problem. Um, walking into a, a, an enterprise and saying, "Hey, I know you've had issue with CenturyLink and um, on the con- connectivity side, but we love to talk to you about us taking over your production-grade environments and hosting your production-grade environments with us." That customer literally has laughed them out of the room and laughed me because I'm I'm a huge fan of the team that's over at the hosted. Uh, side of their house uh, that's you know delivering production-grade services and totally different team than the connectivity side, but they're struggling up against the brand, uh, the tarnished <laughs> tarnished brand that they have with most of the mid-level enterprise and large enterprise market that's been been working with them on that connectivity side. So it's my long-winded way of saying um, that companies such as Megaport and Packet Fabric and Pureport is another one that's here out of the Raleigh area. Uh, they have one singular dedicated focus and their whole team is focused on that. Um, And they're not trying to be all things to all people, which is something to definitely take into consideration because it affects the, how the services are being delivered.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Pureport. Um, uh, I've been talking with a few of those guys over there, and I've seen the platform in action, and it's pretty amazing. It's uh, they've done a they've done a great job um, putting that together, um, and you know uh, preparing themselves to go to market
0: and tackle this other section of the market um, uh, where they're aiming for. Yeah, and we'll we'll likely have uh, someone from Pureport on the podcast here over the next couple of weeks or months to come. But Christian, um, before I lose you uh because we're coming up here at, at the end of our time, there's a handful of organizations that you're a part of uh and you've you as of January I think launched your own newsletter uh, which is friggin phenomenal uh, that kind of does a synopsis of what's going on in the marketplace and moves that are being made and some opinions that you have about how things are gonna shape and play into the future. Uh, could you speak to some of that if people want to follow you or, or get a hold of you or track what you've got going on? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, um, actually it's, I think it's been three years now, um, that I've been running a newsletter. Um, and you know, kind of like I really appreciate you doing this podcast, you know, and, and kind of how it goes back to what I said before about we do things really slow in the network world. There are so many interesting, um, you know, projects and, and, it just things you know media and uh content and initiatives in you know that we see in technology all, all around the industry, but you know fail to see a lot of it in networking data centers internet infrastructure um so you've got you've got a podcast i mean who else has a podcast you know where else can I go and listen to uh the type of content that you know I really enjoy and am passionate about, and I spend you know, most of my life working in, um, not really anywhere, right? Um, and I kind of had this same, this same kind of idea when, you know, newsletters are getting really popular again. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I launched it. And, you know, I was like, I, I don't know how it's going to do. And, you know, it, it got really hard to do. And I took a break and, you know, I'm back at it again. But basically, what I do is I, you know, I'm not breaking news. I'm not, you know, I'm not an analyst or anything like that. But I curate, some of the top stories and the most important stories uh, that I think you should know about if you work in this industry or you're interested in this industry and they range from you know data center to wireless, uh, interconnection, peering, whatever it may be, right? Um, I'm kind of just giving you a curated uh, list of stories you should look at. Uh, sprinkled with you know some opinion here and there on uh, or some of my notes on you know what's happening or what's going to happen in the industry but you know if you're interested in subscribing you can go ahead and, and go to my uh, personal website which is just christian uh slash newsletter and you can subscribe there um you know it's been growing pretty well i'm almost at like four thousand subscribers um so uh it's it's interesting you know because you got to be careful the more more people you get listening to you or more people you get reading your stuff is the bigger your voice gets and you do need to be a little bit careful um you know outside of that um should i talk about ninog things like that yeah please yeah so um just over three years ago, uh, myself and my, my friend and colleague, Dave Temkin, uh, were talking and we're like, you know, look at this thing that Chicago has shy which has been going, which had been going on for a few years by that point. Um, and we are like, we're in New York. This is the greatest city in the world. This is way better than Chicago. No offense to Chicago people. Uh, even though your pizza is not pizza, it's lasagna. Um, we can do this in New York. Right. And, uh, You know, we got a couple people together and, you know, we had our first one. It sold out. We did like 100 and some people at this first meetup, uh, which I I expected, honestly, to do like 30 people. Um, You know, from there, we started doing some more and we became a 501c3 nonprofit providing educational resources um, and opportunities to folks that are interested in networking and network operators. Um, and you know, we've just passed our third year. We just had our 12th, uh, meetup. So we do like a more three hour meetup style event after, after work here in New York once a quarter, basically. Um, so check it out. Ninog.org If you're in the area, we would love to have you, um, and that's, I think that's about it. You know, I think I'm getting into too, too many extracurricular things where I need to, I need to watch out and make sure I have enough time for other things. But um, I've got a few more things going on that are more private and I can't really talk about them yet just because of uh, uh, disclosures and things like that.
0: No worries. But um, so before I let you go, I have some rapid fire questions. But as you've been going through your career, what is one piece of advice that you think was very instrumental or that that you took to heart and has helped shape you as a as a professional in the marketplace
1: um you know i i it, this is a funny one I, I don't actually think i have one but i'm going to give one uh i'm going to give one out in return um uh, which is just have fun and make a difference and uh i've had this on my linkedin profile since linkedin came out and i was trying to figure out what to write and i've just kind of lived by that you know um, uh, you know a- as my career has progressed and as you know my life has kind of you know moved forward and it's just it, you know have fun and make a difference
0: and uh you know enjoy what you do love it um and how about from an education standpoint you know for those listeners who want to dig deeper on these topics you know outside of staying tuned for us releasing the the interconnection interconnection playbook, which should be coming out probably shortly after this uh, podcast gets dropped. Um, you know, what are some other resources that you found very instrumental in your education in the in the industry?
1: Um, yeah, so go to conferences, meet people, um, absorb everything you can. Um, find a mentor if you don't have one, if you can. Um, there's plenty of resources online, too many to list off here. But you know, feel free to get in touch with me uh, by email or on Twitter or wherever, and I can point you in the right direction. Um, but you know, you know, if you are if you've got money to spend, I would say go check out guys like Structure Research and TeleGeography, who do some really great market research. That's kind of yeah, you know, they're kind of in their own niche, right? Like it's not just this, this antiquated. Gartner research or four five one or anything like that. It's actually really interesting stuff. Um, so go check that out if you if you want to spend money to to, to learn. But otherwise, you know, there's there's
0: plenty of resources. Go out to conferences, talk to people. What what are some of the key conferences that you think people should look at attending if they if they want to step up the game and make those connections? Yeah. So
1: I mean, look if you are if you are a network. Operator side, um, or or just strictly network side, then you know, get out, go to Nanog, go to Apricot, go to Ripe. Um, If you are looking for more, you know, on the interconnection and peering side, then check out the global peering forum or the Asia peering forum or the European peering forum, depending on, you know, where you reside or, you know, where your business operates. Um, and, And there are plenty more, right? There are, if you're on wireless, there are specific events for wireless. And if you are data center, then there's stuff like data center dynamics and, other data center conferences like data
0: center world and whatnot. Awesome. Um, Any other last words of of wisdom or or thoughts you want to drop? Um, You know, one of the questions I I typically ask that you may have some feedback on is what is one of the biggest misconceptions people have in the market? Uh, Oh man, this is a, uh, okay.
1: So, um, I'll give you the, the the simplest one, which is that peering is always better and it's cheaper than buying IP transit. Um, and That's a good one. And that is, you know, that is a myth. Um, and you should dig into it on your own. Or you should reach out, and we can kind of explain it. But um, it's not always the case. It can be. It is a tool, just like um, you know, any any tool that a construction worker would put in their tool bag. There's different varieties and different tools. So uh, making sure you use the right one for the
0: right job. Um, That, so that is one of them. Uh, That's, that's a good one. Um, And that, that whole concept dawned on me through reading uh, Bill Norton's internet peering playbook, which I think uh, if someone's really wanting to dig into the weeds about how, the industry operates, that's a, a good resource to, to start with, but he provides some of the economic models, which is what you're talking to from a pricing perspective uh, on how to determine whether or not peering is going to be effective for you, especially due to the reality that the cost for um, IP transit has been dropping so dramatically uh, month over month, year over year for God knows, you know, the last couple of decades since it became a, a real thing. Um, so that's drastically changing the economic modeling for, for peering for most folks. But Christian, I greatly, greatly appreciate you and the work that you're doing in the industry, the knowledge that you drop on a regular basis. I think we both share a passion for um, for the industry, but also for just sharing the knowledge that we, we've gained and that a rising tide will hopefully, God willing, raise all ships. Um, So appreciate your time with me today. Hopefully this was helpful for our listeners to gain some nuggets of intel that they can take into their day-to-day world Um, and they know how to connect with you. We'll definitely put that in the show notes online. And my final question as always is, Christian, do you love data centers? I love data centers, Sean, and thank you so
1: much for having me as a guest. Uh, I am beyond excited that there is a podcast and even more excited that you're the one that's hosting it. Um, if, you know, everyone that's listening, share this with your colleagues. This is the best way to get it out. And let's get, you know, 100,000 people listening to Sean's podcast if they're not already um, and I'm gonna leave you with one piece of controversial um, uh, advice or not advice. I'm gonna leave you with one piece of uh, a controversial statement to think about. The Northern Virginia data center market is getting too big.
0: Yeah. It, in when you say it's getting too big, define that a little bit is it's simply there's too much supply. Uh, there's um, too much demand. there's there's both. Um, even if, so
1: even if the, even if the demand is there, there is too much demand. That's so by getting too big, there is too much, there's getting too much infrastructure in this one area of Virginia. Yeah. There That's are, you
0: say that. Yeah. I've been, I've been preaching that for the last couple of years, uh, especially since I came to North Carolina <laughs> for obvious reasons, because we're not far away from Northern Virginia. Uh, And the cost of doing business down here is substantially lower than the cost it is to do business up there. And I see too many people looking to deploy up in that market for reasons that just don't make sense, Uh, both economically speaking and just from uh, what applications they're looking to host up there. They just want to be there because they want to be there. so I'd, I'd love to have that conversation both with anyone listening and with you uh, another time. And maybe we can set up another time to, to have this conversation live.
1: I think I think that's a round table um, in the making that would be just super exciting to, to yeah. get up to people on.
0: Agree. Um, all right, brother. Well, thank you so much. And I'll be talking to you soon. And thank you listeners for, for tuning in. All right. Thanks, Sean. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com, where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center co Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash Centers. Have a great week and I will see you and and hopefully hear from you soon.